in addition to that, he's basically saying, if you didn't have that kid, you could come out and get drunk with me and possibly hook up. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what kind of message is that? And welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's a show where longtime friends and musicians get together to discuss a randomly selected album from Robert Dimery's book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. We'll give you some context on the band and the album that we're talking about this week. Uh, We'll do a bit of a deep dive on a few select tracks. And at the end, we'll vote on whether or not you must listen to this album before you die. My name's Alan. I've been playing music for uh, just over 20 years, but I've been complaining about music for about twice as long. So (laughs) take everything with a grain of salt that you hear on this here program today. But this week, I'm really excited to, to talk about a band who at one point in their career, not on this album, unfortunately, but wrote a song with possibly the best song title ever, which is What I Like Most About You Is Your Girlfriend. And that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that seems like something Tom would write. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, we are talking about the Ska Revival Band, known as The Specials, and their self-titled debut album. So we'll do some introductions shortly, but before we do that, let's jump right in with the first track from the album called A Message to You, Rudy. Let's introduce our key players for this evening by way of a tweet-length review of this album. Let's start with you, Rob. Hey, this is Rob here, and here's my tweet-length review of the Specials debut record. I didn't know anything about Ska going into this week, the origins or the various revival movements, and while I'm not going to buy any checkered shirts or pork pie hats anytime soon, (laughs) I got to admit it's hard not to bob your head to this stuff. Actually, if y'all could see the video, Rob actually looks like he's wearing like a black and white shirt, kind of rocking the the two tone thing that we'll that we'll talk about today. So, <laughs> all right, uh, let's kick it over to you, Adam. Hey, everybody, this is Adam, and my quick tweet is: Is Bob Marley too authentic for you? Are the police too <laughs> well good? Then have I got a treat for you? Enter the specials and their stiff brand of punky and soulless reggae. <laughs> oh, okay, all right, I- I'm digging this. Coming in hot. Yeah, I like it, like it. <laughs> this is Alan again here. So my tweet length review is, unlike the insidious punk-funk fusion that we've justifiably ragged on on the show in the past, it actually turns out that punk and reggae together are much more palatable. So 
Looks like we have a decent cross-section of opinions that, that we'll get in today. But let, let's start with the specials themselves, kind of who are they, where they come from. A little bit about this album first. So this album was released in October of, of 1979. It was one of really two albums that this, this band put out in this configuration. So we'll get into some of the band members shortly. But Adam, you'll you'll kind of love this. You're all about the Gantt charts of the bands and how many members. Oh, yeah. It, it's... <laughs> They've they've kept this thing going for a while in various permutations, but with, with the original configuration, they were really in and out of the music scene. I think pretty quickly, sort of that like better to burn out than fade away. Although they kind of did both, right. as as we'll talk about here today. But the specials, uh, as I mentioned earlier, were an English ska revival band. They they actually formed in 1977, but really they they were credited as as the band that pioneered what came to be known as two tone ska. And we're really leading the charge of, of what music historians kind of refer to as like the second wave of ska, with the first wave being the, you know, sort of traditional Jamaican ska of the 50s and 60s. And then the third wave being the ska that I think we probably are all as like children of the 90s, very familiar with. Sublime, I'm looking at yeah. you. Real big fish. <laughs> Right. Yeah, Boston's yeah, right. kind of like even like Fishbone, no doubt, sort of dabbled in that space before they got big. And I will actually say I have a bit of an affinity for this kind of music. I know that it's it's pretty, you know, samey, as you know, we say sometimes. I really loved, you know, I loved that band Rancid. I loved the band uh, Operation Ivy, who was a sort of precursor to Rancid. And so I, I will say I'm a little disappointed that in retrospect, those bands didn't do much with this sound other than, you know, kind of what the specials were doing at the time. Regurgitate it or just just not evolving it really in, in my okay, mind. Right. That's fun. I never made those connections with those bands. Not that I'm I'm definitely not super familiar with those bands or really any of that punkier side of the 90s, let's say. But I just thought of them as precursors to pop punk. I wasn't I wasn't making the connection with with this kind of music. But but now that you say that it does it does make sense and just on the whole I'm sure we're gonna get into general impressions but this album was less samey than I was expecting it to be and that was a pleasant surprise I agree with that the musicianship was pretty high and and I think the production was really great too and and we should probably start out by saying that this album was actually produced by Elvis Costello. I don't know how was he really producing much around this time? I know he was a fan of this band, but I actually was wondering about that, too. And I tried to look. Well, first of all, I tried to get interviews of him reflecting on it. I couldn't really find anything. And then I looked. I did find a list of his production credits and he has a production credit on a whole bunch of albums. But a lot of them are his albums and no other sort of big names jump out to me other than this one. So I wouldn't say he's known as a producer. I got the impression he just liked this band and agreed to help him out. Yeah, I think so too. And, and the, really the spirit of this band. And if you watch some of the, the videos, or especially if you hear some of the live music, like this was a live band, right? So the live shows that this band were putting on were intense. I mean, the songs were like twice the speed of what they are. I was going to say, yeah, like I know most live performances, you always take up the tempo a hair and the deluxe album, the deluxe version of this album that's available on Spotify. If you let it just run, you eventually start hitting some live stuff. And man, you're right. Like some of the live tunes feel like they're twice the speed. They are cooking. These dudes worked hard. If you watch their shows, like it almost reminded me of like a 
p-funk show on steroids like there's just guys running around the stage and <laughs> just fast just wiling out and i mean really like if you if you've heard the term like skanking which is sort of of calling it dancing is maybe a little generous <laughs> but it's 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 high energy it's it's just moving right. all over the place sweaty and these guys were doing it in like full suits right so pork pie hats just drenched in sweat i mean definitely working it and i think that's what drew elvis costello to this band and he actually did say about producing this album he said you know my job was to get the band on tape before a more skilled producer got a hold of them and screwed it up completely (laughs) by perfecting things that didn't need perfecting so i think that was his sort of attitude going into this album this is a bit of speculation, but just to add to why Elvis Costello might have liked them, one aspect was they're from a similar part of the UK to Elvis Costello. He's from Liverpool. They're from a place outside Birmingham. I can't think of what it's called. Coventry, I want to say. Small town or something. But it's they're, those are kind of in the same area. They're pretty far from London. They're the so-called Midlands, I believe of UK. So just, I imagine there's some kinship there. Uh, the other part was probably the, the met, the political message, the racial integration aspect of it, which I know he was a big proponent of, and, you know, was pretty vocal about as well. Rob, you know, a lot more about Elvis Costello than I do. So there were a lot of quirky, I'll call them quirky elements on this album that I'm wondering if you saw some like cost like, do you think Costello was maybe behind some of that? Like the, the shouted vocals that are so out in front, you know, and, and just some of the other kind of, yeah, just quirky is the best word I could think of. I was attributing some of that to him. I do think it's like impeccably well-produced is how I would put it. The band sounds extremely tight, which of course is all credit to the band, I I would imagine. But at the same time, there's so many textures, so many instruments going on. When Alan goes on to read these members, right? There's a lot of people in this band. There's a lot going on in these songs amidst, relatively simple rhythms and I thought the production really was able it's an example to me of a mix and a production that both feels like a live band but feels so much more rich for listening to it in a recording because you can hear every detail it had live energy but it also had produced lots of texture yeah texture exactly yeah I agree I think they really captured even though it was slowed down like I I'm always skeptical of bands who or groups that crush it live but can't really translate that to their albums and even though this was a lot more slowed down I I do think they they kind of nailed that kind of the the dance vibe that they're going for and you know you mentioned earlier Rob I I don't know how you could listen to this and not bob your head and not dance and not want to get up and move because it's just it's very rhythmic music and you know to, to kind of give you a sense for like where this all came from rob you mentioned coventry earlier i think it's kind of important to talk about what was happening in Coventry at the time that that this album was made and and that this band kind of came into came to in, in existence. Um, so you know this is like mid to late seventies. Coventry had actually been kind of destroyed like by by Germany during World War II. That most of the, the of the city was basically leveled, and so as they were rebuilding the town, tons of people were moving in from Jamaica, from the West Indies. Manufacturing was actually really big. It, it's been said that Coventry was was sort of like a mini Detroit, in the sense that they actually had a pretty thriving automobile industry, but also much like Detroit, they ended up on on pretty hard times. And this was really in the late seventies where there was a a pretty bad recession. 
you know, all the manufacturing jobs really disappeared. So you had all this sort of discontent, you know, not just with the state of things with with the economy and, and politically, but you had a lot, lot of racial tension as well. And so that was really wh- where this music sort of came up. I, I should say the, the, the band was started by this guy, Jerry Dammers. He was this huge reggae fan who grew up in this era and, and he he in his high school years actually dabbled in playing some some reggae and soul music and was really getting into that sound of of like the island rhythms and and some of that old traditional ska but what you also had going on at the time in parallel was the birth of of the punk movement out there you know so you had bands like the clash who were starting to kind of come into their own around that time and so he wanted to really like meld these two genres and you know like i said earlier it it actually works really well and i think if you in a vacuum if this didn't exist and you said hey let's take reggae rhythms and ska and meld it with something that is pretty much utterly undanceable in you know, standard punk rock. I don't think it would have really worked very well, but it did. Rob, you also touched on this earlier. Part of this whole deal was was bringing like a multiracial aspect to things. They ultimately had nine guys and... Damn, that's a lot of mouths to feed. A lot of mouths to feed. And I mean... <laughs> I guess you could field a baseball team with how many <laughs> how many people they had playing, but they were a, a mixed race group where you had you had three uh, black guys and do do the math on the rest of the white guys. But it doesn't seem that edgy now to think of like oh like black guys and white guys playing together. What's the big deal? But like at that time where there was a lot of racial tension, there was there was a lot of like Nazi sort of bubbling under the surface and you know there were there were skinheads who were coming to these shows and and causing shit who didn't want to see you know white and black people playing together and i think that was part of their deal as they were also trying to make a statement that hey you know like these are people we grew up with and and we don't really see it this way and that political kind of spirit and that punk spirit really like was imbued i think in in their music you just hit on so many things that i learned this week and one of them, I listened to this sight unseen on what the band looked like. And, you know, the opening track, all I could think of was like, this is fish and there's no soul and they're trying to do reggae and it's bad. And then a couple tracks in, you hear some voices and you're like, oh, wait, are there some actual islanders in this band? And I was like, okay. So then I, my, my view shifted a little bit more. And then as I dug into the evolution of reggae, I had no idea that ska predated reggae and that ska was a more, I won't call it straight lace, but I'll say it was more tight on the beats. And reggae is where, that came after that, is where you get that laid back, slower, that pocket, that groove. But in my mind, this was just a bunch of, you know, rhythmic, not rhythmically challenged, but just, you know, straight laced white guys trying to play reggae. And that's totally not what it was. So they are actually staying true to the roots of reggae, again, which yeah. I learned was this thing called ska in the 50s in, in Jamaica and those uh, the, those islands. I didn't know that either. The fact that this movement itself was a revival. I was thinking of the 90s movement that we referenced, Mighty Mighty Boss Tones, etc., and thinking that that was a revival of this <laughs> movement in right. Britain. Yeah, so that was, that was news to me as well. I wanted to mention, too, though, that, Alan, you mentioned 
skinheads, I'm sure that nationalism, I'm sure what you said was holistically accurate, right? That nationalism, racial tension was a factor. But another thing I learned this week is that there was a separate skinhead movement. They called themselves skinheads, but it had nothing to do with white power in England. It was about this like working class, anti-bourgeois thing. Exactly. And so that can be easily confused. Just want to point that out because I think some of the members of this band considered themselves at some point a part of that movement. You know, Jerry Dahmer is the guy who started the band at one point identified as as a skinhead, also as a, as a hippie at one point, and he renounced that pretty hardcore when he got into this music. But no, I'm glad you mentioned that, Rob, because I, I came across that as well. And specifically, I came across like an interview with somebody who was part of this whole like ska movement. And, you know, he's talking about like the racial dynamics. And, and in the interview, he's like, yeah, you know, then I realized like the black guys were cool and the white guys were cool and the skinheads were cool. And, and the way he just like threw it in there, I was like, wait, what the fuck? <laughs> Maybe it means something different to this guy, right? Or I was like, man, they're just more accepting than I expected. Right. Well, it's confusing. And I didn't go on a deep dive here. Right? It's confusing because it's possible that these movements played into each other. But Wikipedia draws a clear distinction between skinhead in UK and white power skinhead. And right. it says it's a member of a subculture that originated among working class youths in London in the 60s, you know, and it, it included shaven heads, obviously, and like steel toed boots and stuff that later was adopted by a lot of punks, frankly. But it doesn't mention racism, at least in the first two paragraphs. So I don't know. I think it's a much different paradigm than than like we're used to. And and I, I was definitely guilty of like conflating some of it at various points of my research in this album. Something else you mentioned, though, Rob, was your impression that the third wave of Scott was more of the revival. And I do agree to the extent that something that the groups like the specials in the second wave really pioneered in this whole two-tone ska thing, which by the way, two-tone was a a record label that, that Jerry Dahmer started. And, but what it came to mean was uh, the obvious parts of two-tone being, you know, black and white. But if you look at all of their aesthetics, right. That's so obvious. How did I miss that? (laughs) It is. And then that's, that's also the fashion, right? Right. So that was the fashion, but, but they created some of that too. Right. So the whole, you know, wearing like your finest suits and, and you know, that the pork pie hats and all that stuff that was not as far as I understand original to like the first ska movement that was kind of in response to like a lot of the people that were playing this music were from like lower class, middle class. And the idea was, you know, unlike the punks who really didn't give a fuck what they were wearing, these guys said, Hey, let's, we, we want to put on like the nicest stuff that we have and we, we mm. want to look good. And I think that that is what kind of carried over into that third wave. So when you look at like the mighty, mighty Boston's and bands like that, I think they're paying homage to, to bands like the specials with, with, with that attire. Interesting. Just to be clear though, I, I have to call you on, I think punks care a lot about what they dress like. I think they were almost more image obsessed than any other subculture I could think of. Well, yeah, you mean uh, going to Hot Topic was was not just a <laughs> carefully placed safety pins. Yeah. So I'll rephrase that. I'll say that their their aesthetic was meant to look like they didn't give a shit. Right. Right. I think any yeah. group. I mean, shit. If you look at like, you know, most hipsters are trying to look like they don't give a shit but yeah their hair is sort of like quaffed a certain way and and all that so point taken i think the specials their legacy is really one of 
it was a singular kind of moment in time that they captured and they are seen as as extremely influential and well regarded i think they had some critical acclaim they weren't huge commercially though right this wasn't a band that sold like a ton of records and to to kind of illustrate some of that let's let's get into to buy the numbers here this album the best really that it did was it was certified gold in the uk at about 100,000 records i'm sure that after the fact it's it's they've sold more and there's been various reissues and and things like that but from a commercial standpoint like they were not like super commercially successful although they were for a brief moment in time kind of like the band in the UK so they had they had their moments they definitely were not a one hit wonder but they were you know they definitely came and went so you know certified gold 100,000 records another number the number 1 Right. So that's the number of songs on this album that actually topped the UK charts, which is a song called Too Much Too Young, which we'll actually talk about in a moment. Really? Somehow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. I'm surprised. Not color yeah, me surprised. Right. Me, yeah, me too. I, I think that that nine minute jam. Never mind. All right. Well, we'll get into the complaints in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so another number that I found surprising, and we kind of alluded to this earlier, the number three, which was the number of years that this band was together in this configuration. In my mind, it was a lot longer just because they've stuck around in different permutations. And and then the final number I'll mention is the number 40, which again, I alluded to earlier. If you look at the number of members who have been in this band it's really like a ship of theseus kind of thing where it's (laughs) it's just constituent parts at this point and and you know there's some thread back to the original group but but by and large it's it's mostly you know hired guns i think at this point were they mostly the horn players swapping in and out because i've seen snarky puppy uh, a handful of times and i feel like they are one of those bands where yeah, they've got six horns on stage at any one point in time, and any one of those guys can change. That's a they're a collective by design. Though. Yeah, okay, that's, that's different. Yeah, that's yeah. I yeah, think that's, that's a, a different point. situation. I yeah. think y- you tell me. I didn't look at the Gantt chart, but is this a situation where Jerry Dahmer's, for instance, is the one through line because he owns the name? And he just keeps cycling through people? No, I think he actually was not one of the... I think he sort of disassociated with the band at a certain point. I, I don't have that information like in front of me right now. Mm. I think that one of the through lines was this guy, Linville Golding, who was one of the, the black guitar players. He stuck around the entire time. There's been like one or two other members. They also had a, a hiatus at one point of a few years, but it's not a uh, Iron Maiden type situation where you had like the one guy right and he's the hub and touring non-stop for 40 years right yeah i I just wanted to clarify there's a couple different versions of this story one is the iron maiden the bass player it's his band it's kind of conceived as his band and then he manages to keep it going as as a going concern cycling through various players that's sort of what axel rose did with the guns and roses name because he owned the name right much to the chagrin of his former bandmates and then there's this it sounds like what this is is more like the temptations the temptations are still touring the casinos of america all, but all the original temptations are definitely right. dead right it's almost like the harlem Glo- globetrotters you know or something it's it's right, just like right, franchise right, that, right. you know still doing the same songs but when they did start though they they were as i mentioned like a a, a pretty tight core of people so the group consisted of of course jerry Dahmer's. Dammers, whatever you want to call it. So he was the founder, keyboard player. You had 
this guy, Terry Hall, who was the the primary lead vocalist who he actually passed away in uh, December of last year. So that may have hit the brakes on some of their recent touring. They also had Neville Staple on vocals, Linville Golding, I mentioned earlier, this guy, Roddy Radiation on guitars, <laughs> Horace Panter on bass, John Bradbury on drums. And they later added, or at least added to the official lineup, uh, Dick Cuffel and this guy Rico Rodriguez on horns, who he was, Rico Rodriguez was one of the original, not not a pioneer, but he he was OG ska, like he was playing in like the 50s and 60s, you know, bands. Oh, wow. And okay. so he, it's probably a good segue to, to, to get into the song, uh, A Message to You, Rudy, where I believe he played on the original version of that song. It sounds very old school. Listen, I I think I said it at the top. I'm not familiar with this style of music, nor do I have any particular affinity to any of these waves we've mentioned. So it's pretty fresh listening for me. Other than Bob Marley, my main reggae touchstone is the Harder They Come soundtrack, which has a mix of Jimmy Cliff songs, Desmond Decker. So this kind of reminded me of the De- Desmond Decker material, which I think was happening in the 60s in, in Jamaica. I, I dug it, and I really like the mixing a lot. I think they did a really good job with the backing vocals, like where they're placed. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll agree with that. Although I think it's it's an interesting choice. We talked about the Black Crows that you know their the number one tune was a cover, and to come out of the gate, opening track on your opening debut album is essentially a cover song, which is an interesting choice. But yeah, it's catchy as hell, man. That little horn motif has been running through my head all week, you know, when I'm showering, when I'm waking up in the morning, and I'm not at all offended by it either. So I I think it's a, it's a, well, it's a good song. I've had a lot of these earworms in my head, but yeah, I think this one is the biggest one. It also occurred to me too, that people might hear us or other musical nerds talk about one, four, five chord progressions. People, the so-called one, four, five, you can learn a million songs with one, four, five, in case you're wondering what that is. This is it. <laughs> this is a great example of CFG or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. I thought it was interesting. The two men singing in unison for the verse. I don't know if that's a classic, you know, reggae or a ska thing, but it was a very interesting way to start it off. Something I wasn't expecting. And to have the, the two guys singing in unison, the, the verse, and then in the chorus, they go to harmony. Which was it was just a really cool way to start things off. So right out of the gate, this this did prepare me, I I think, for actually now that I think about it, I think the album is much different than this very old school classic song. So maybe this isn't a great I would agree. I would agree. This this does this stands out as distinct from most of the rest of the material. Yeah, right, right. So so yeah, this doesn't necessarily represent the rest of the album. Well, and there's also like an additional fake out if you are listening to this on like a streaming platform where the most accessible accessible version is the this deluxe version, which they actually start off the album with a song called Gangster, which was 
not on this album originally. Apparently, it was included in the some of the U.S versions of the album at the time but it wasn't even the first song it was like sandwiched in between a few other songs so not sure why they sort of let off with it in the deluxe version although it was their first single that they put out as a band and and it was a pretty good song too we can kind of drop a, a little clip in here Yeah, I listened on Spotify, of course. I think we all did. And I just looked at the specials catalog and saw that the deluxe version was the only one. And it's a double disc where the second disc is all live. So usually when I see that, that comes up a lot with some of these old records. They've been remastered and re-released as deluxe versions with either demos or live recordings kind of in the back half. And I usually just don't even research it. I just listen to disc one and assume that is the record. So that is, that's confusing. But Ari, this song, this ended up being my favorite song. I think it still sounds pretty hip. The really dry drum sound, which you kind of hear across the whole record, combined or contrasted really nicely with his really wet, echoey lead vocal. To me, it's just really, really tasty. And I would just say throughout this song, I don't have specific timestamp examples. There's a lot of little, what, what you might call background answer riffs. There's an idea in music of question and answer one instrument plays a question and then another instrument kind of answers it with a riff. There's a lot of subtlety and texture and answer riffs from guitar, from organ, just really cool, tasty little spots that only just pop up for a second and then go away. Yeah. And especially in this genre, there was, there was a little riff in there that I would almost call Egyptian in the yeah, mode it was playing. Totally. And it was just like out of left field, but it worked really well. Yeah, so I, I thought that in a song that was under three minutes, they packed in a lot of cool different feel changes and, and like you said, just different like little motifs that are popping in and out throughout the song that make it really interesting. Absolutely. Oh, and one more thing I wanted to mention is at first I was asking myself, is that a shaker, like some kind of percussive element? Or is that a guy's voice? But then Go, I watched chick, the tape. Chick, chick, chick. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But then I watched the tape of them doing it on SNL and it's the second singer doing it like a beatbox. Oh, that's cool. That's very cool. Th this one immediately, although, uh, Alan, you were saying this wasn't on the original release. It wasn't on the original UK release. It was on some versions of the US release, but it was not the lead, the lead off track. It was kind of buried in the mix somewhere. Because this has Costello written all over it in terms of the theme of, you know, the corrupt government, the police are corrupt, the brute squad's going to come and get you. That's, that's, I got that feel. Again, what, what very little I know about Elvis Costello, this song stuck out to me like, oh, I think I can see, not that he wrote it or influenced it, but why he might dig this band. Goon Squad. Yeah, I, I totally hear that. <laughs> yeah, makes Goon sense. Goon Squad. Yeah. Well, what's funny is apparently part of 
this there's a line about something like confiscating our guitars or something like that there is actually a back yes. did you read about the backstory behind that at all no no so i think they were staying at a hotel possibly in france but i'm not sure and there was a band that stayed there before them called the damned and I guess they destroyed the place so badly that there was like a guilt by association so that they preemptively Uh. like the hotel staff took their guitars as like collateral for a a potential thrashing of the the hotel room. We know your type. (laughs) We know your type. But as as a song, this song slaps, man. Like it's killer. I love when it comes back into the head after a little bit of the jamming. Like there's just, it just relieves so nicely. The only thing I didn't like about this song, and it's true for some of the songs on here, I'm not a fan of the the monotone. So this guy Terry Hall, who was the singer, just more okay, right. And I feel like it's what I don't like about like bands like The Clash either, or like it's it's a little bit of like Sex Pistols vibe. It's a minor complaint but that's what we do here. So left a little <laughs> get out the nitpick and comb. Go through. That doesn't, that didn't bother me. Yeah. It did remind me of the clash or that, that felt like the, a major punk element. And, and we haven't mentioned yet too, you know, what, what parts of it are punk and what parts of it are ska? Because I, I, in other words, I think the vocal is a big part of what makes it punk. Maybe it's also the lyrical content, but Musically, when you when I think of punk, I'm thinking of almost all downstrokes. Boom, 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 boom. And this is the sort of the inverse of that. It's all about the upstroke. Reggae is all about hitting on the two and the four beat, right? right. So you hear that throughout the entire record. It's like a rule of songwriting for these guys. <laughs> it's definitely like a template almost. I, I think that sort of shows up in a lot of these songs. I think where the punkness comes from is the the tempo the energy, the message, the political message, the sort of like confrontational antagonistic, you know, piece of it where if if you go back and listen to some of, you know, 50s and 60s Jamaican ska or, you know, reggae from that era, it's it's a lot more, you know, some of it's more down tempo. It's more sort of dubby and, you know, something like you kind of want to like smoke a joint and just kind of zone out to it where this this is more this is not that yeah (laughs) there's nothing (laughs) relaxing about this although you know my my sources tell me that it's still a fun ride if if you want to do that (laughs) the the anonymous sources don't want to be named here (laughs) cool all right so let us move on to uh, the next track on our list which is the aforementioned track too much too young You've done too much, much too young Now you're married with a kid When you could be having fun with me I'm not 100% sure. Did they literally just loop the song? Like, did they write a three-minute song and then start it over? I swear, around the six-minute mark, when you're he's just con- harping on that too much, too young, it just felt very uh, very labored. And this was the hit. 
which is crazy to me because this was one of my least favorite songs on the album. Mind-boggling. I wrote that it was the low point okay, for two reasons. Yeah. One, it's way too long, and everything else on this record is so tight in terms right. of format. You have three minutes in change. Some are two minutes in change, mm -hmm. most of the songs. This is by far the longest song, and yet it does not have material to sustain it. There's like two <laughs> melodies and two lyrics. That's it. And they on top of that, saying. it's preachy. It's like, right. what are you... What is this message? What are you... We got it. Okay. Right. Well, and, and this is the... This song kind of reminded me, like, lyrically of... Well, let me first say, I, I, I did find this to be catchy. Like, this is one of the ones that's sort of ringing in my head still. So I can kind of see its appeal in that way. But I, I thought lyrically it reminded me almost... And I don't mean this to be, like, crass, but it just had that feel of, like, a modern country song where it's just like you're you're watching TV you shouldn't add a baby like there's not much metaphor or it's just <laughs> the here, here you go the little fun lyric of too much too young i feel like they found that and they were like oh this is a song right and tom's talked about it we've all talked about it where you have like a really good lyrical phrase and then you try to write a song around it this is one of those instances where it didn't work very well and also alan to your point I didn't understand because it sounds like they're promoting using birth control, right? Because I don't want to have a baby and you could add fun with me. But then they say something about like, not genocide, but the implication that the government wants to st sterilize. I think that's the word they use, that the government's going to sterilize us. So it was a, a very odd conflicting lyrics that, that didn't quite tell a story for me. Yeah. In addition to that, he's basically saying, if you didn't have that kid, you could come out and get drunk with me and possibly hook up. <laughs> like, what kind of message is that? I, I, I agree that this this was the one where it was like, I'm missing the, you know, this isn't like Rage Against the Machine talking about like dismantling the the patriarchy the and, and all that. This yeah. was just like, <laughs> and it, it turns out that, that Jerry Dahmers who wrote this song later did say that it was just, he was just sort of jealous that, you know, a love interest of his had maybe moved on and, and whatever, but like, <laughs> apparently it was controversial as well. I read that at the time in England, it was kind of a big deal that this was a radio hit because they were talking about, I think he says at the end, wear a cap, like a condom and birth control and all this stuff that, I guess in 76, 77 was still pretty taboo for, you know, mainstream radio. Well, apparently they, when this, this song was featured in like a promo video on uh, top of the pops, which I think they may have actually performed this on there as well, but they actually cut the song off right before that, that last line of try wearing a cap. So yeah, I think it was right. kind of, <laughs> wow. yeah, the, I don't know what's up with the, it does feel like they just stacked the same song together like twice in a row like i definitely felt faked out at a point where i was like oh that is are they just restarting the song like there's is just really no reason for it <laughs> yeah it's one of these examples i know we always complain about songs being too long but in this case i think if they just cut it in half i would have found it much more palatable it, it would it would have glanced off me what was Elvis Costello thinking, man? He knows better than this. Maybe they overrode him. They they get they got one veto, and this was it. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny. I think Costello was really trying to just like get out of the way and like let sure. them do their thing. I, I think he he wasn't like terribly interested in in kind of meddling or, or whatever. In fact, I think there's a a story where he he actually wanted them to kick out one of the guitar players. 
during the recordings, but Dahmer's was like, nah, I don't, I don't want to do that. And so, yeah, that might've been where he, he sort of pressed his luck and <laughs> decided to retreat back into the corner. All right. <laughs> so let's move on to uh, the next song on our focus list. It's called concrete jungle. I dig this song. I would probably call it my second favorite song. I feel like it's, it's definitely a success. The claps are cool. The little drum breakdowns have cool energy to them. But I do have a complaint, which is Bob Marley has a song already of the same name. <laughs> is that right. like a trope? Because I saw in the in an article that the specials also later released a song called Rat Race, which is also a Bob Marley song. Huh. But they but it, they're not connected song wise, other than by the title. So is that a thing in this subculture? That just seems bizarre to me. I write it as more of an homage because I think the Concrete Jungle by Marley is talking about how terrible his town is, sure. right? Uh, it, back in, in Kingston, I believe. And this is the same thing where these guys are downtrodden. They hate their city because it's, you know, uh, everybody's poor or, or the jobs or whatever. So maybe this was their deliberately saying, hey, we're we're going through the same thing that Bob was going through, right? Uh, I get it. It's a, little, it's a, a phrase. Pu- yeah, it's out right. there. Concrete jungle. It's a good turn of phrase. I'm not sure when it was coined. Sure. I don't think Bob Marley coined it or anything, right? But it just feels like they could have given it a different title and had the exact same song kind of eluded this problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. They went kind of head on at that. Yeah, it feels like they wrote it and maybe they had like a melody in mind and then at the end they were like shit we need a name how about concrete jungle it, it is <laughs> maybe it's part of the subculture I, I i'm not entirely sure but it does it does leave a bad taste in my mouth i i definitely agree with that musically though i i think it's it's pretty it's pretty slick i love the little like bass double stops like that yes that feels very unreggae cool. to me like it feels a lot more like more progressive than Punk. yeah this is where i i got a lot of punk vibes no, musically, it's very strong. It's totally a successful song. I would play it. I would definitely play it again. Yeah. I do feel like I couldn't put my finger on where I've heard the beat before, but it does feel like a very common, like a dun, 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 dun. You know, that feels a little bit like a played out kind of beat just in music in general. But um, wait, is that know. what it is? That's the Bo Diddley beat, what you just did with your mouth. Well, let me let me spin this back here real quick. This has more disco vibes, actually. I yeah, was, I think I this beat is a little different disco. than the traditional Bo Diddley that you did. You know what? No, I was. So what it does is a da, 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 da. I think I was conflating this too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Something like that or hey Mickey, you're so fine. Yes. Right, right, right. I think that's what I was what I was anchoring to. So uh yeah, thanks for that. So I I know I came hot at the top of the episode, and but truth be told, I I do like this album. One issue 
and I guess my over, like my biggest complaint about the whole thing, and maybe it's just the the genre idea that we're a ska band, we're going to write a ska album, so that every song is ultimately going to wind up with a heavy syncopation, like it's got it, it it always has to wind up in that spot because this song and the next two songs on the focus list they start out so different, so cool. And by the time I got to these, I kept in my head thinking, okay, well, in three seconds, it's going to go back to, and I, like, I just wanted them to just deviate from the pattern just a little bit, but they always went back to the syncopation. Again, I get it. They're in a genre, but that was the one thing that rubbed me a little about this entire experience with this album was just waiting for the syncopation to come back. And it always did. Yeah, I, I agree. Again, it, it has a little bit of that like templated kind of feel to it. And yeah, I think it's just like a hallmark uh, of this music in general. And But you hear it in, in a lot of these modern ska bands too. Like if you, I wouldn't call Rancid necessarily like ska, but they were very ska influenced. Like if you listen to that song, you know, Time Bomb, it's... Oh my God, that came up in my head so... <laughs> Black shirt, white cat, Cadillac, or whatever the hell it was. It's right? like slathered in these kind of rhythms, right? Yeah, it's it, it's it does take some of the mystique out of it if you if your expectations are a certain way that you're you know what you're gonna hear it does kind of like demystify it in a weird way, but uh, I guess it's just what they do. I mean, what what I'm suggesting is that Elvis Costello said, "Guys, we should slow it down for one song and do a ballad." <laughs> Let's cover After the Love is Gone by Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> and no syncopation. No syncopation. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you said that Elvis was kind of hands off, which I could totally believe because, like I said, it does have live energy and you can tell the band is tight sort of before they walked in. But then I guess I have to say it's impeccably recorded. There's really great isolation and then it's impeccably mixed. So, you know, to, to me, yeah. that's what stands out across... A lot of other records I think we hear. You, you can really hear everything amidst a cr- relatively crowded arrangement. You can hear what they're intending you to hear, and different instruments kind of get their moments throughout in a really pleasant way. I agree. Just feels like you don't get that on every record. I, that's that's uncommon, I would say. Yeah, I think that it sounds really good. And I also think that even the arrangements, too, where when you have this much instrumentation, it's really easy to have just mud and everyone's kind of throwing their shit against the wall and everyone's trying to get their their licks in when it's time for the bass to shine it really comes through and and everything feels like it i i think i think the arranging is good i think the mixing's good it's it's all pretty pretty well on point alan i did want to get your thoughts on bass tone in this song because it felt a little too clean and my god am i nitpicking here it felt like it was straight direct. Like there's no amp sound. There's no, I don't want to call it dirt, but there's just, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of warmth around it. It feels like it's just run straight into the box. I don't know if you had any thoughts on that or if it rubbed you the wrong way or if you were in love with it. I didn't really put much thought into the tone or, or like how things were mic'd. I wonder if the double stops and some of the higher like mid frequencies are just so un, un underutilized in, in this kind of music where it's so dubby and it's generally so like bassy that it's maybe it just had a little bit more attack 
in the in the bass tone. Right. I'm not used to hearing those register of notes in this type of, of music. So maybe it just sounded well. And it's possible. Don't discount that there may have been a pick involved. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> Hang on. Hold on. Get your drinks Cross ready. I, you know, I'm not. I can't confirm or deny, but but picks may have been <laughs> utilized. <laughs> I like the idea of the drinking game that we need to continue after the 100th episode. <laughs> I mean, Tom's not here to defend himself, so let's let's really get into right. this. <laughs> uh, Tom's position is completely ridiculous. Obviously, a pick is the right choice in many occasions. Oh, yeah. And the fact that he'll never budge from that is is very endearing and very Tom. Charming. All right. Let's move on to uh, our next song in the mix, which is a song called Blank Expression. Falling all around Seven o'clock and the roads are blocked So I walk downtown There's no one around I walk in a bar and immediately I sense danger, you look at me girl as if I was some kind of a A total stranger Where did you get that blank, blank expression on your face? This was the ballad I was talking about. This is the one I wanted. This is actually my favorite really? track on the album. Yeah, I love this tune. The, the intro I thought was outstanding. And they they managed to come back to a very, right, that intro, there's nothing ska, there's nothing reggae about it. And they somehow managed to come back to that and somehow introduce the ska rhythm into it in a way that doesn't annoy the shit out of me. So I loved this tune. This was a low point for me, <laughs> <laughs> which I feel like we've had a lot of these moments uh, which, which is good. I, I think having that diversity of opinion is great. I... I could not get past the fact this just, it sounded like a fucking Christmas song. <laughs> like listen to the beginning and tell me that does not sound like it's launching into a Christmas song. I don't want a lot for Christmas. <laughs> yes, you're right. Okay. Now that you say it's that, pretty, that's yeah. Remarkably accurate. Yeah. All right. You destroyed my favorite part but of the it, album. Go that's now. just really the beginning part. That's not the, the, what I didn't like about the song. I just, the oh, blank. Expression. Like it, it just didn't feel very like musical to me in like the vocal delivery. And it was again one of those examples of the the sort of clashy, you know, sex pistol y okay. kind of. Uh. And I, I know I'm being a little bit kind of nitpicky here on this, but it just, I, I frankly, I felt like the song title captured my exact mode when, when <laughs> I was I listening to this too. song. <laughs> That's what I said too. No, listen, commenters, you say we're always the same. How dare you? We have three right, distinct right. opinions here because I said blank expression. To me, it was a total meh song. It was fine. I did think that the vocal trade off that Alan just alluded to stood out as disconcerting and like a bad production choice. Something was weird about it. I don't know if it was the mix or the delivery or, or the arrangement itself. There was that hard pan drums thing. Just so you have to take another drink. We just mentioned hard panning. <laughs> but it did. This song didn't really do anything for me. I thought of it as kind of a sister song to It Doesn't Make It All Right, which I actually kind of liked more. The other sort of ballad on on the record. We didn't put it on the focus list, but 
Yeah, I felt neutral about it. Oh, yes, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, I don't know. It just didn't do it for me. I also felt like this was one of the tunes where, and maybe I, I should have been like keyed into more of this to see how consistent it was, but this also didn't strike me as like, hey, we're we're trying to make a statement or, you know, it's, it's I, I heard a quote from, you know, somebody who was involved in this era, not in this band, but another ska band that was like, if you're not saying anything in your music, then you're you're nothing like what's what's the point of even doing it and i just felt like this kind of veered into that territory a little bit yeah didn't didn't quite do it for me all right well moving on to our last song <laughs> well is there anything else that we got on this oh god i'm scared no no no, no. <laughs> all right what's the last song called again oh the, the last song on our focus list is a song called little bitch one two <laughs> I think you made a mistake. You played Jumpin' Jack Flash <laughs> by the Rolling yeah. Stones. <laughs> right? That song existed in, in the timeline, right? When this song was... that Not only existed, it's one of the most popular songs of the last decade. I know. <laughs> That's what I thought. I was like, did it come out yet? Yeah. It was very jarring. I didn't, I didn't connect it to that song specifically, but I did write a note that I thought it sounded like a Rolling Stones or like a early Aerosmith. You know, kind of so I was thinking like Mama Can or something like that, but I liked parts of this song. I think it, lyrically, it's again, it's a little flimsy, uh, I guess would be a, a, a nice word for it. But those backups in the second verse are really cool. They're like super high. I don't know if they're, they're saying a word or just saying ooh or something, but it's really cool over top. It's I noticed those two, but I really couldn't get past the theft of the Jumpin' Jack Flash riff. I think it is literally, for at least six-eighths of this, is exactly the same riff. Yeah, I'm listening now. Yeah, it's damn close. Yeah. How is that not a lawsuit? How didn't the Rolling Stones sue? What was that other 90s band? Bittersweet Symphony. And they uh, won that suit. The Verve oh, pipe? The Verve. The Verve. Or was the Verve? No, it was just the Verve. Just the Verve, I believe. And they won. They won that suit for the violin line from one of their songs. I mean, come on. Come on, wow. Nick. Wake up, buddy. Yeah, he, he could be getting some money. Well, this was another one where... The intro, regardless of whether or not it's stolen, it was really nice. It was different. It kind of took me out of the syncopation. And then, sure. <laughs> yeah, six seconds in, here we go. Come on. That was the other thing is that this one reminded me the most of the 90s wave of this music, which I don't like or which I don't have a good feeling about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. this. So uh, when I re- referenced that song Time Bomb earlier, the, the Rancid song, the do 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 like just the the whole walking baseline thing, which oh, which I do like, yeah. but I do feel like it really foreshadowed that era in a big way. Going back to the the 
the Stones thing, though, what, what's really interesting is Mick Jagger was actually a fan of this band and tried to sign them to Rolling Stone Records. And what happened is they ended up wanting to do their own thing, which is where, you know, Dahmer's actually started a record label called Two Tone. And that's sort of like where this all kind of got its name from. Yeah. Can you imagine that, by the way? Can you imagine your band? Turning down. This has not recorded anything yet. And Mick Jagger offers to put you on his label. He said, no, I'm good. Nah, pass. We want to be around for three years and then take a 15-year hiatus <laughs> and then come back with our, with our third I want to handle wave. my own distribution. That always goes amazing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I don't know that it would have prevented what really brought this band down, which was just like a lot of personalities that didn't agree. There, there's not a huge history of like, I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed that there wasn't as much like debauchery or shenanigans as I generally like to see from a band In out a of band this era. like this. Yeah. But they definitely, a lot of alcoholics, a lot of, I, I think what would actually, <laughs> right, well then that's, that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We check that box. Let's go with the classics. I do think there, what, what ultimately broke them was when they came to America and, just couldn't handle the rigors of, of touring and, and all that stuff. Yeah. So they might've been doomed kind of from the, from the start. All right. Well, I think that gives us a nice uh, representative sample of the specials debut album. I think the only thing left for us to do is to vote on whether or not this is a must listen album. Let's start with you, Rob. Yeah. Thanks, Alan. For me, it's going to be a Yes. Pretty easy pass. I know we nitpicked it a little bit, but overall, I think it was a really excellently made product of a record. The band's tight. It comes through, as does the live energy. It was fun to listen to. This is definitely not my type of music. It wasn't before, and it will not in the future. But I wouldn't mind putting this on again. And if you do, li- when you do listen to it, as I'm recommending, don't sleep on Gangster. I thought that was a really good track, and it's unfortunate. It's you know, it's in this streaming spotify version but maybe not on all the versions so yeah i think it was totally worth hearing it is worth hearing before you die all right what about you adam yeah i read something somewhere in some review that said that the specials are important because when they came out it was as if depression era dust bowl ballads suddenly became hip again in an era of global (laughs) economic meltdown wow (laughs) and for that to occur it, it's definitely a feather in their cap, so I appreciate that. But again, I'm not a huge on this genre, just like Rob. You know, I guess this is second wave, whatever it is. But it was quirky, but it's solid. It kept me interested in a genre that generally I get bored with. And I learned a lot this week in terms of the history of reggae and syncopation. And I read some stuff about the drum beats, the, you know, the one drop uh, style of drumming that's in reggae. So this was a great week, a great album. You should listen to it. It's a yes, a yes for me. All right. Well, I guess that renders my vote uh, irrelevant, but I'm going to vote yes anyway. So we'll, we'll give the specials a, a clean sweep here. Nice. Yeah. It, it checks a lot of boxes for me. I think it's historically significant. It, it really pioneered a sound that still, as much as it's maybe like a niche kind of sound that is still around and that still has influenced a lot of bands. And I think it also, you know, as we, we go through these albums and we really dissect, you know, sometimes I can appreciate the bands where, 
you know, I don't really even want to put that much thought into it. And I just want to like listen and, and kind of enjoy the music. And I think it's just, it's easy listening. It's, it's cool. It's danceable. You know, I, I think some of it's not the most, it's a little samey at times, but uh, yeah, definitely a, uh, I think it's a must listen for sure. As someone who doesn't like the genre, if you're that person, it's better than you think it's going to be for sure. Yes. Well said, Rob. Absolutely. Because, yeah, go- going into it, I think one of somebody had said when we announced this, like, oh, I think they're ska. And I rolled my eyes like, oh, God. <laughs> and then, <laughs> we all my, know that feeling. Yeah. My, my memory of ska bands was in high school. I, I think, well, Phil and Tom aren't on the call, but I feel like we all went to a ska show somewhere in Wilmington. And the lead singer, for some reason, just started throwing soda cans into the crowd and like injuring people. So that was my my. T- my takeaway from ska music. But this is not that. So listen. Yeah, catchy tunes. And sorry, looking back over my notes, I realized there was one little factoid. I was clicking around on Wikipedia, and the lead singer on this record, Terry Hall, apparently dated one of the Go-Go's and is credited as co-writing Our Lips Are Sealed, which is one of their biggest hits. Really? Wow. Which is a great tune. Interesting. I didn't know he did any writing uh, of any sort. He... (laughs) You know, seemed like a singer and and not much more in my mind. But hey, what's that cool. supposed to mean, bass player? <laughs> no. <laughs> Ooh. Hey, it's sad because it's true. <laughs> All right. Well, specials, you're in the books. Nicely done, folks. Now let's see what we got in uh, in the old mailbag. Rob, I'm told you are in possession. What do you got for us today? Oh, yeah. Thanks, Alan. Yeah, I've been carefully collating all the Pixies feedback. It was a contentious episode and lots of people wrote in. And so I'm going to read you a few of the choice words that came back from our. Well, we I think we slammed. I wasn't on the call, so you can blame Alan, Adam and Tom. I I knew the reckoning was was coming. Really, you can blame Tom. His address is. No. <laughs> right. Uh, but we ultimately did vote it on, I should point out, for the listeners. But anyway, I here's a lot of people wrote in about it. So here's a couple samples. Brian from the UK writes, Guys, I'm currently listening to this review, and wow, certainly didn't see that coming. You've been slamming most of my favorites. Not quite sure why. I saw Pixies on their UK tour back in 1998. They were incredible. They were the future of rock and roll, wearing a flannelette shirt. And then he sent us a Pixies YouTube clip to attempt to convince us further. <laughs> Fortunately, we had already recorded the episode. We cannot be convinced, Brian. Wait, does, does he not realize that like we take a position and we dig our heels in despite <laughs> any never. incoming evidence? <laughs> I think I think people get it. I think people get it. But you know, they have they have to make their voice heard and we sure. appreciate it. Yeah. We 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 love when you write in. Bill from Virginia says he wrote some nice things about us in general. And then he said, I also wanted to tell you that Pixie Surfer Rosa has the best drum sound of their catalog. It also has boobs on the cover, as you guys pointed out, the best single of their entire catalog. But honestly, for me, it's probably not a must listen. I'd rate their other records on par or slightly better. Wow. All right. Interesting. Yeah, I do think they they, they became a lot poppier as their albums went went on. I think they became maybe a little bit more accessible. But um, yeah, that's, that's cool. Okay, and I want to read one last one. Chris from California writes, This is why I listen to the pod. In spite of your incorrect opinions, <laughs> you found yourselves to the correct result. Oh, Surfer Rosa right. should be listened to before you die. I'm a little older, 
than you blokes. And an unabashedly an indie rock and metal kid from that era, Pixies had a sound that was unlike anything I had heard previously. Of course, the surf and garage rock elements were present, but the application of the pop form with dissonance and harmony touched me in all the special places. Side note, you've changed my mind on Beck. Oh, wow. So the rare positive mind change that we put out into the world, I want to point out. We've ruined plenty of artists for our listeners. But Beck, I believe we gave a pretty glowing review, relatively glowing review to Odelay. And Chris is saying we changed his mind on Beck. So wow. good on All us. Right. Hey. Nice work. Doing, doing the Lord's work out here. <laughs> Cool. Well, we'll take it. Hey, those are that's a great cross section. I, I feel like you know, as long as look, I, I never want to come on here and just sort of tow the the popular line. Or I think these albums, it's it's worth kind of digging in and really dissecting. Like, are are they as great as as people claim they are? And so, yeah, we sure welcome any and all feedback. Please can keep it coming. Our email address is 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Definitely uh, let us know what you think. Yes, I totally agreed. We have tons of respect for the craft, but it's fun to take hard opinions. And, you know, we didn't, I don't think we've mentioned this in a while, but I think the underlying premise of the show is that there aren't actually 1001 things you need to listen to in this world. <laughs> and that, you know, I think that's a reasonable position to take overall. Yeah, aren't we? Uh, I think we're, what's our, what's our acceptance rate? Like 60%-ish? Yeah, we're in the 60 to 65% range last I checked. So in, you know, 15 years, we'll be able to tell you there's like 600 there's albums. 600, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And all the ones that he left off, which is going to be a whole separate thing. But nonetheless, speaking of albums that you must listen to, we need to figure out what we are going to listen to next week. So, Rob, let us know what that Albinator is cooking up. Ah, yeah, it's in my possession now. I've I've cranked it up. I I was I was looking around on the back and I found a little switch. It was set to Rude Boy, so I'm going to turn that (laughs) off. And without further ado, give it a spin. Next week, we shall be listening to... R.E.M.'s Green. Okay. All right. Big band, longstanding. Yeah. Concern, college rock heroes. So excited. I don't don't know the record specifically, but I'm under the impression all their records have at least one song I know on them. Right. Yeah. I, I'm curious to hear, cause I think this predates like the, their MTV explosion with like losing my religion and, and whatnot. So I'm kind of curious to dig into that. Cause I really don't know that, that side of REM. So that should be, should be a fun time. Awesome. Same, same. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, we have our homework assignment and, uh, we really hope that you'll join us next week to, to dive into REM with that. I've been Alan. I'm Rob and I'm Adam. Boosh, 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 boosh. boosh. <laughs>